Listener, you have no idea how difficult that intro was to make. <laughs> Listen, that piece of music just starts out of nowhere, and it's it's profoundly earwormy from, like, three seconds in. Yep, but, but it's those before? crucial three seconds. <laughs> oh, Hello. that's hard, man. Hello and welcome to the Disney Animated Cannonball, a podcast project where I get exposed to the entirety of the Disney Animated Canon, for better or worse. And this time, we might disagree about what that is. And I watch and laugh and rub my bony fingers against each other in glee. <laughs> this is Talon Lee, he, him. I'm Fox Lee, she, her. And this time we are talking about 1985's The Black Cauldron, Disney's inexplicable old shame that they're embarrassed of on a level they're not embarrassed of Song of the South. It's it's mysterious to me. I guess we can assume that it's uh, valued higher than Melody Time, since it at least appears on Disney Plus somewhere. Oh yeah, we'll get to that. But uh, yeah, I mean, well really it's about how this this uh, was a gut punch for them in the box office more than anything. So mm. I guess we're we're here to analyze whether or not capitalism should be allowed to evaluate our family movies. Indeed. This is also very much the point where the studio, as we understood it in the whole season, is almost dead at this point. We are drawing towards a eulogy for this era of Disney. Right, and, and it's being a rough fucking end as well. Like... We've we've seen some sketchy times this season, but we still had a lot of the the critical, uh, let's say, visionaries with all the baggage that entails uh, from the original Disney Studios. And at this point, I believe they are all gone. Yeah, there there is still one or two struggling along, and we'll we'll even get onto that going on. Did we have an Ollie Johnston in this movie? Yeah, we did. We did. Okay, we've still got one of the nine old men. Mm. But just for comparison, the first season of the this podcast lasted from 1937 to 1949, so about 12 years. Sure, yeah. The second season, 50 to 67, so about 15 years. This is 1970 to 1988, so <laughs> almost 20 years. The gaps are getting bigger. See it, well, they're about to get a lot fucking smaller, so oh, put yeah. a pin in that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we are drawing upon the period which we generally regard as nothing but bangers. And we'll have fun arguing about that later. We are uh, climbing our way up a very steep roller coaster. And we are about to crest the top of that. Uh, but for now, we are just at our most exhausted crawling up that edge. <sighs> It's true, it's true. And this is this is a conversation we're going to get into. But first, we have segments. We have structure. We do. We do. And we start off with the plot in 60 seconds. Which I'm told is my turn. I thought I did the last one, but apparently not. No. Okay, well, this ain't real hard. Your time starts now. In the mystical land of not Wales, we meet our hero, a young boy called Taran who wants to be a great warrior because he's an idiot. But he is instead the keeper of a pig. The pig is fucking psychic. Keep up. 
Uh, he is charged with taking this pig to safety, so the resident evil warlord of this land, the Horn King, cannot use her mystic powers to find a cursed artifact which will let him raise an undead army to take over the world. Taran immediately fails at this task, distracted by his own fantasies, and has to go and rescue the pig from the palace, in the process getting himself caught. He meets a princess who is locked up in the dungeon for reasons not disclosed to us. They eventually escape together and uh, accidentally find their way into the kingdom of the fairies, who can tell them where the cursed artifact is, so they decide they're going to destroy it before the Horn King can get to it. They fuck this up too. The Horn King raises an army, and they narrowly manage to destroy the cauldron before he can do anything with his new army of the dead. Through a friend I haven't mentioned because I am in way over my head, heroically sacrificing himself. After which, a bunch of stuff happens, and Taran proves he's had a character arc. So they get their friend back. Alright, so look. You went over. I went well over. Though in my defense, more happened in this movie than we've been seeing in a lot of them lately. Yeah, and like, don't get me wrong, there is there, there was some uh, showing off. There was some some commentary along the way, which is un- <laughs> understandable. You know. Understandable. It's, it's what got you engaged. All right, fine. I got greedy. You were full of fire. You just fucking say it. And the fact is, you won in overtime. So I think that counts as a win, even if you went twenty. I seconds. don't need you to patronize me. <laughs> I blew it. I'm right. not bothered. Well, I mean, if you're gonna fail at describing the plot for a movie. I kind of feel like it's a bit of an embarrassment to fail at describing the plot of this one, given your attitude towards it. <laughs> I don't know. This is... Well, okay, that's the thing. It's not an undercomplicated plot. Mm. In fact, it's sort of got more twists than turns and is strictly necessary. It's just that our heroes keep making stupid decisions. Mm. Is, is my problem with it. And also, the direction of this is shot to hell. So... Next up, we have your relationship to it. Hey, you should ask me that because it'll be nice and quick. Yeah, what's your relationship with this movie? If you had told me that this wasn't a Disney movie, I'd have believed you. (laughs) If you told me this is one of Don Bluth's movies, I would have believed you. If you had told me that you had made this movie up and put it on the spreadsheets to see if I was paying attention, (laughs) I would have believed you. Hey, Tom, they totally made a Disney movie about whales. Oh, that's a secret weapon that'll come back. Wait, no, we're not doing the Pixar one. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I have no relationship to this movie, and I do not know anyone with relationship to this movie. I did not know this movie existed. I, in fact, thought for a very long time that I had seen this movie <laughs> because I remembered the chicken that was also an axe. And that's... Oh, God, no, that's from Magic Sword. Yes. That's not even a Don Bluth. No, that's that's way over in the wilds over there. That's Warner Brothers makes legally distinct Belle, and she wants to be a knight, but she sucks. But we do get blind Cariels in the bargain, so, you know, I still watched it. Look, I'll go through a lot for blind Cariels. Also, we get Gary Oldman saying something like, the ogre's butt, which... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll go through a lot for blind Cariels! However, that's me. We already knew I don't know shit about this world. <laughs> that is the premise of the podcast. Hey, Fox, what's your previous relationship to the <sighs> Black Cauldron? Well, do you remember the storybook I showed you last time? My literally falling apart childhood memories of Fox and the Hound. Yep. Yeah. Um, one of the three PC games I got to play in my childhood, because my dad was not into spending a lot of money on PC games, let me tell you, uh, was the Sierra Engine Black Cauldron game. 
Yep. So I fell in a bizarre kind of masochistic love with this story. Um, it's... Get this out of the way. I don't recommend playing the game except as an exercise in pain. It's, uh, it's a Sierra adventure game. It's cripplingly mean. If you are one of my friends in my space who knows about this kind of thing, it's an AGI Sierra engine game from 1985, which you might recognize from the first Police Quest 1, Space Quest 1 and 2, and the first three King's Quests. It's that slightly tacky uh broad like the pixels are twice as wide and only one unit high <laughs> that kind of thing um the yes and and as a sierra game it is brutally cruel oh yes um, if you thought that you wouldn't die every three seconds just because this is a disney game you are wrong uh what's the era of sierra engine where they have the f key shortcuts for like do and use and eat and stuff that would be the agi the adventure that, game the interpreter okay. yeah so that that's what we're talking about fill me in on this uh, a moment of curiosity. In this engine, do you normally have the arrow keys for controls, and you push to start moving and push yep. to stop moving? Yes. Okay. That was, in fact, the standard model of how all Sierra's engines worked. And did any of these games make you climb a diagonal rope? Constantly. Every single one of them. So every one of these had a sequence where you had to move one pixel to the side, one pixel up, one pixel to the side... Yes. One pixel up. Right, yeah. This was this was intentional design. This is something that engine did. Uh, I actually want to take that back. Police Quest 1 doesn't, but that one's mendacious in a whole bunch of other ways, and the man who made it is a literal monster. So, let's not go there. Um, if anyone's particularly interested in this period of games, uh, the AGI is the engine where the parser is disconnected from the action on screen. So you can be typing and moving at the same time. The subsequent engine, the SCI, which I think is the Sierra Computer Interpreter, it was the one that had, when you typed something, a prompt would come up and it would freeze the action. Ah, yeah. Which is Space Quest 3, King's Quest 4, the second and onward uh, police quests, and of course the first Quest for Glory game, the best game Sierra made. <laughs> now, I can't remember exactly how the parser worked in this, but... I remember that it was distinct because you could play without the parser entirely if yep. you wanted to. It used the mixed-up Mother Goose engine variant. Oh god, it did! Oh, oh god, it does, doesn't it? Okay. For reference, that's the second of the three games. Listener, you don't get this experience. I do. <laughs> I just watched Fox's eyes dilate like she was about to flip a spaceship through the quantum dimensions. Just uh, some memory unlocked. I there. haven't thought about Mixed Up Mother Goose in so long. Anyway, so you had a lot to say about this movie? I I did. Um, in fact, all of my double-take notes, which is where I talk about stuff that I only noticed on the most recent watch-through, is just this music. <laughs> These fucking geese. <laughs> This fucking goat. <laughs> this fucking music. <laughs> oh, no alligators in the moat this time? <laughs> they love putting alligators in the moat. Oh, so. Um, yeah. I never finished this game as a child, by the way. I downloaded it uh, in, in about 2002, I think, just to be like, I'll, I'll, I'll take you, stupid game. You don't get to beat me forever. I think I still needed a guide. <laughs> But at that point, I still hadn't seen the actual movie, which is what we're supposed to be talking about right now, because this is another one where I got to know this intimately. 
through a form that was not a fair representation of its content. Well, uh, before we go off the subject of the game, because I have some notes about the game, but they're not worth coming back to it. We're, I'm I'm not driving this car around this <laughs> cul-de-sac again. Actually, okay, well, if we're going to pull out of, of Sierra Road, then I, I will add it contained the first pun I remember ever hearing and going, oh, I get that, that's a play on words, because there's one point where you find an enchanted loot in a tree. So you take the loot and run! <laughs> so the game was developed by Al Lowe, who, in addition to being just a workhorse Sierra maker, is also the creative mind behind <laughs> leisure suit larry all of them no 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 oh no that's right they were the williams yeah the williams roberta williams and ken williams yeah. were the two who were driving the company no al low al low did a lot of work on a lot of different games but it was very much <laughs> hey al finish this game that we've got someone started but the thing that was al low's project was leisure suit larry no, i wanted to do the horny game yeah he also did mixed up mother goose like he was the guy <laughs> who they got to do the kids game why kids games and sex that's a weird resume. Well, here's the other thing. Al Lowe has actually still been on the internet. He is an extremely online man. Oh, no. And just so you know, Al Lowe says trans rights. Oh, yeah? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. That's way better than I expected from the Leisure Suit Larry guy. Good <laughs> yeah. job at being a basic human being. Yeah, he doesn't like the new Leisure Suit Larry games that have been made with his character's, like, legally distinct versions because he doesn't think that they have the right sense of humor and they don't take they don't treat the uh, audience the way that they should. But yeah, he's probably right. I mean, I don't oh, think yeah. anyone would say they've improved in quality over the years. Almost certainly not. But okay. So, that's all I have on the game. Okay. We're leaving Sierra behind. We're leaving Sierra game. The god. <laughs> the, okay. I I'm going to you know what? We'll do a little video later where I get you to play the opening minutes of this game and just see how long it takes you to scream at this fucking goat. Alright, I've satisfied that. <laughs> bye bye, Sierra. Now here's another thing about this movie, which I, I want to mention. I want to just, you know, feel you out here. <coughs> as far as prior relationships go, I also understand that this movie is based on a book series that I haven't read. Oh, oh yes, I forgot to talk about that entirely. Yeah, because I, uh, yes, there's five books. Uh, I own a couple, I've read them all, um, and they're quite good. And this movie is essentially a fusion of the first two. Black Cauldron is actually the second. Okay, well, um, we can talk more about that. Yeah, that's, that's a big topic, so uh, we'll, we'll touch on that now and get into that later. That's a secret clue that'll help us later! Exactly. Uh, that said, since I've done my double takes, and you, I'm pretty sure, would have none. I'm still not sure this movie is real. Groovy! So let's roll straight into Of It's Time, or as we like to subtitle it, The Yikes Store. Alright, do you have extensive yikes here? Not extensive yikes, I have a few notes. I have a non-yikesy Of It's Time, which is that we finally got completely no credits before Phil. Yep. We just got straight in credits, long credits roll at the end. Mm -hmm. This is the first time I think we've seen a movie... <clears throat> by Disney that opens with what I think of as the classic Disney opening. Blue screen, white logo, that sound. Yeah, that. That's the first one I've seen that happen on. Yeah, that's definitely the version that I remember too. That, that was the 90s version. Mm. Now, this may not actually be the source of the first one. We'll learn more about that later. Probably not. I like that. I remember hearing that on home video. Yeah, I want to say before I saw it on any cinemas, but we'll see. 
I'm sure they'll let us know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll I'll uh, move on to a mild yikes, which is just America sure does love making other cultures' underworld gods into Satan. Yeah, because the Horn King is Satan. <laughs> In this, uh, kind of yeah. Uh, now the Horn King is not actually the the villain of this from. Uh, <laughs> In the books. <laughs> in the books. Well, he's a fusion of the two characters. In the books, we have actual Auron. Uh, Auron? Auron. I'm sorry, we're going to say a lot of Welsh names wrong. Uh, we're doing our best. This is actual talent, actual heritage, and if we had his nan here, I'm sure she would tell us how to say this shit properly. It's true, it's true. Um, she And, and you know, she would have loved to have a big old chat about paganism. <laughs> she would. Uh, anyway, so uh, Aron was our book villain, and the Horn King was a like warlord under him. Uh, and for the purpose of this movie, fusing them together was a perfectly correct choice. We did not need two villains, mm-hmm. but he's also fucking Satan, and Aron is not Satan. Aron no. is a pretty chill underworld god. Yeah, uh, much like you know, chill Hades is is kind of a cool dude a lot of the time. But if he ever appears in white person, well, if he ever appears in American shit. Boy, is he Satan. Yeah. They cannot get over it. And Lloyd, Alexa- Lloyd Alexander, a name that should know better, it turns out, is from Philadelphia. So yeah. I feel like this this story's relationship with Welshness is like me writing Scottish mythology stuff. Okay? Like, technically, yes, that is my heritage. I am not close enough to it to use it correctly. Well, or correctly isn't even the right word. It might well have been that Lloyd Alexander loved his Welsh heritage and wanted to write about it, and this is what we got, because it's been filtered through layers of colonialist uh, transformation. And that kind of, that's interesting and also kind of sucks at the same time. the absolute fuck Christianized out of it, though. Oh, God, yes. And I think that was his jam as well. I seem to remember him being distinctly a Christian. Yeah. I apologize if I'm wrong about that. Yeah, the... The idea of the Horned King and Aaron being Satan figures is deeply weird. Um, I It isn't the worst I've seen. I've seen someone claim that the King Under the Mountain is Satan. The King Under the Mountain? <laughs> the mythological hero who's going to come back to save you in your time of need. Isn't that Jesus? That, that guy might also actually be Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> well, we saw Arthur in a Disney film already and he sucked. Yeah. My, my actual yikes door section here is, um... It's a whole bunch of cut-off sentences, because I'm like, oh no, this is go- oh, actually, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> uh, like, the there is a dancing girl in the castle, and- I'm awarding that a full yikes, I don't know about you. Well, that's the thing, I'm sitting here going, they're gonna say something terrible, or awful, or they're gonna call her horrible, or- No, they're all, like, into her, and she's dancing on the table, and it seems to be having fun as well. Yeah, but she is the one woman of ill enough repute to appear in this situation, and she is one million percent a gypsy tramp caricature. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) She is a saucy hoe character, and she is very deliberately supposed to look like a, a, a awful Romani stereotype. It's not cool. Yeah, um, but- there is one full sentence in my yikes door section, which is, Oh no, this is just, excuse me, princess. The fight between Taran and Ilonwe is not pleasant. There's some baby steps towards children's <laughs> feminism, I guess you'd call it. Yeah. Of like, hey, don't be mean to the girl. She can be just like a boy. Like, hang on, wait, that whole fucking framing is wrong. And then they have Obi useless for the the entirety of the movie after she 
gets him out of prison. She Ev- does. Literally everything I can think of her doing is open one door. Most of her dialogue is yelling people's names after the, the escape from the castle. It's, it's very rough. frustrating. And we're going to talk about that in the adaptation discussion as well. Mm-hmm. But you're also touching on how most of my problems with this movie are directorial. Like, mm. there's a lot of good here, but most of it is so fumbled it makes me really angry. Like, that yeah. fucking fight scene is a perfect example. It lasts for three seconds and goes nowhere. Neither character really learns anything or develops. They're just sort of okay with each other now. And the resolution after it is equally, wait, why the fuck are they suddenly almost romantically involved in this sentence? Yeah, it's it's not cool, yeah. Nah, well, yeah. <laughs> the romance arc is a flob as well, yeah. Alright, well, I gave it one other fully-fledged yikes. Which is? Just another uh, fat girl thinking they're desirable is hilarious. Yeah, that one's up there. Um, I did also note, however, it's weird that I'm relieved that they did that cleavage stuff with a character who's an adult. <laughs> oh, we're going to talk about him in adaptation spaces. Oh, well. oh, I you better I, believe I, it. I may have peeked ahead and seen something that will help us later. <laughs> Uh, look, since we're there, it's not yikesy, but if we're gonna comment on the frog being squished in the giant titties, I will say, what the fuck do they think tits are made out of? Because, <laughs> like, if there is a frog in your cleavage, you know there's a frog in your cleavage, right? <laughs> it's not a mystery you don't go, oh, where did it go? I wonder if it's the thing moving between my pendulous breasts. <laughs> I've looked at a lot of the production and making of this movie and related franchise, I have looked into authors and coders, and the first woman's name I saw is Roberta Williams for the video game. Alright? I would not be surprised if no one involved in this had any idea what it's like to have breasts. (sighs) There was an actress reading those lines. She probably had boobs. The actress playing the fat lady, she's one of those actors who I was able to go, Oh! She's in a whole bunch of stuff. That's awesome. And literally oh. none of it is stuff you would notice. Oh, oh, the well. closest I can get is that she was in three episodes of Super Ted. Oh, I like Super Ted. Unfortunately, she wasn't Mother Nature, so she wasn't like the one iconic woman of Super Ted. She was just a lady who got rescued <laughs> a couple of times. Voices. Yeah. Uh, on that note, uh, since I have nothing else in my yikes list to you, uh, I will say I have no... Nothing worth noting on on voices for this one. Mm. Um, I don't recognize any of these from past or future Disney stuff. Uh, So, if you want to impress me with any of that, up to you. Well, we'll have to get there after we deal with... (laughs) Eyelash watch. Eh. Henwen has eyelashes and I don't know their gender. Henwen's a girl. Okay. (laughs) Wait a minute! That's some bullshit then! (laughs) <laughs> fucking! We need to know the pig's a girl, so give her eyelashes. Oh my fucking god. <laughs> Animators are babies. Well! <laughs> boop, 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 boop. Fuck off. <laughs> and now it's time for Between the Lines, the segment where we talk about how this got made. I have a lot of complaints about this, I'm not gonna lie. You, you would like to see the manager? Oh god. I have a list. I put animation Karen into my mouth. <laughs> um... All right. Well, let let's 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 start with a neutral note. Then we are back to like proper, like super wide wide screen, which is kind of pleasant. Yeah, yeah, it's quite nice. Um, I I also have a um, I also have, I actually this isn't a neutral note. This is just plain out praise. Uh, this movie actually looks really good. Like the art of the backgrounds, uh, in almost every shot where I was like really looking at something splendid, 
is beautiful. The the sequence in Old Man... Cared Alban. Cared Alban. Uh, the sequence in his house. <laughs> I'm assuming his name is Cared Alban. Dolben is his name. Cared Alban is the, the, okay. the place. Care is like a, a key for... Mm. The background visuals for that were multi-layered and the layers had multiple, not, not like literally in a technical sense, but like the actual <laughs> visual aesthetic had multiple layers of decreasing detail, but you still had stuff in those background elements. It was just nicely drawn, hand handcrafted kind of background stuff. <laughs> and this is one of those things about this uh, that really stood out to me, which is at the time, there's no technique for making really good, varied, interesting backgrounds full of lots of small details, aside from just get people to draw it. I mean, it's not a technique. It's just, if you want that, you draw that. Yeah. Consider Sword in the Stone had a whole bunch of sections where the background elements actually became like just abstracted shapes and colors with some sketchy lines in them to fill them out. Whereas in this, it's like, no, everything is hand-drawn. Well, everything was hand-drawn in Sword in the Stone as well. It's- <laughs> Sorry, everything is specifically detailed. Oh, yeah, I'll give you that. Like, that's, uh, I mean, that's what we've had for a couple of films now. They've We we had some rough ones with, like, Dalmatians and Sword in the Stone. And the Aristocats. Uh, and- where we got a lot of, uh, abstractly coloured is really what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like, finely detailed lines. Very simple colours. Um, but we pulled out of that a while ago. Uh, though I, I will agree, these are quite beautiful. When they're there, because mm-hmm. there are also a lot of scenes where the background is billowing smoke. Yep. And nothing else. Which is another thing that comes up. So on the note of that billowing, on the note of that billowing smoke, this movie has the strange honor of, depending on who you ask, being the first CGI animated movie. The backgrounds... <laughs> it extremely does not, but yes. Okay. The backgrounds were made using a technique called animation photo transfer, where uh, chemicals and cells and neutralizers are all employed, and this is something that gets considered a type of computer graphic. I do not know how it works. I cannot argue about how it should be classified, (laughs) but Chuck Jones argues that it doesn't count, or rather, xerography as a whole counts. Because back in the 60s, xerographs were known as computers. Interesting. I, well, if he's right about that, then you could call it CGI, but... The point is, using one special effects technique doesn't mean it's a CGI, and that was what I was taking. Yeah. Like, this is still hand-drawn animation. The bulk of it is, yeah. Some of it isn't. Yeah, but th- if, if a movie is 90% hand-drawn and there's some CG stuff in there, it's not suddenly a CGI animated movie. That technique does make the backgrounds look... Can't, like It looks like a budget-saving technique in a lot of places, but that's not really where my problems with this movie, because mostly my problems are with character animation. It's, it's just kind of disappointing. Like, it feels inexpert compared to what we've watched recently and i feel like there's a very obvious reason for that which is that these people weren't experts yet because they were this new generation that hadn't uh fully panned out yeah well it, sort of sort of the a bomb went off in fox and the hound yeah we are still picking through the rubble right and the rubble means that we have, like, we're really back to panto animation here. Characters' movements are really exaggerated, but not to any purposeful uh, use. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone waggles their head around when they're talking, but in doing so, you can watch their eyes, like, unfocus from who they're supposed to be talking to. Yeah. Uh, it, it feels like trying to imitate Disney-style 
uh, without quite getting there. And like, I don't say this to be mean, I'm really sad about this. An interesting detail is that this animation technique from working from photos, part of what that was used for was to incorporate mannerisms and gestures from the actors. And I happen to know that the Bard's voice actor is a British theatre icon. Uh, so is the Horned King. And Taron is voiced by an actual 14-year-old. So when you draw my attention to the fact that these gestures are both pantomime and exaggerated, especially those three characters, my brain goes, huh, yeah, actually, that makes complete sense. Well, I was going to make an exception for Hluda Flam, actually. Ah! Because uh, he, he swaggles once or Yeah! Twice. He does an actual swaggle, and his character animation is of a totally different quality to our two leads. He's a bit of a xerographic boy, isn't he? Uh, he also goes sketchy, yeah. And yeah! So my theory about this is that he's kind of a, a relic of, of the recent movies. Uh-huh. Uh, where you can see that, like, much more competent, much more detailed uh, line animation, and the price of that is that, yeah, he, he goes a bit fuzzy here and there. Yep, and we, we can talk all sorts of fun Ooh, things about that when we get to the explosions. Production. Yeah. Um, so he swaggles, and that's lovely for him. Uh, our two leads have animation, though. There's a lot of facial expressions that go very wrong. The close-up where Ailonwi sort of does her I believe in you, we're romantic love interests now. That's a weird fucking shot, man. Her face goes all wrong there. <laughs> Turn like it. It's, yeah, it's it's kind of half and half -y. Gurgi's character animation is lovely. Gurgi's great. He's, I probably should have mentioned him when I was talking about the game, by the way, because I fell in love with this character. He appears in the game, bolts across the screen at high speed, runs into you, knocks you over... And you have to, like, try and chase him down and give him food to make him stop doing this. <laughs> or he'll just run away. And, Aww. like, he shows up to help you later or something. But the point is, I just adored this tiny collection of pixels. Yep. Uh, and it makes me wonder if Gurgi was actually a popular character or if people thought he was, like, stupid, annoying Jar Jar Binks kind of character. Because uh, my opinion on that is forever warped. Well, if, if I remember correctly, in the novels, Gurgi isn't like that. No, Gurgi is kind of a horrifying mountain man. He's described as being a hermit, I think, and he's kind of covered in leaves and sticks and mud and, like, he's gross. He's he's also not... His, his speech patterns and whatnot come from the book. Uh, that is not an, an actor's interpretation. Um, but, yeah, he, he was not a cute, fuzzy sidekick. I like this version of him better. That's mm -hmm. a good adaptation change. And, uh, I like this Gurgi, he's good. And a little asterisk here, Gurgi is a dog. Oh. <laughs> oh my god, it's true. I mean, he's a type of dog we don't see very often because he's openly cowardly and greedy. But dogs are cowardly and greedy. Mm -hmm. They're just also the best. Yep. So, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I enjoyed him. <laughs> uh, I also feel like most of the action they suffer in this movie. They're not great. We cut well from... okay hang on, hang on let me let me hold up the the stuff heroes do isn't great oh yeah the stuff happening around them is very yeah cool. like me some undead like this movie gets metal as fuck I, yeah i don't think i don't appreciate that like we got some real fucking skeletor shit going on in this mm. castle um but like when it comes time for characters to fight they're shockingly bad at it even the ones who are supposed to be good like 
Our main character, you can forgive because he's literally being piloted by a magic sword in most of his fight scenes. Yeah. And he's just kind of hanging on. But like, all all the warriors who are supposed to enact your evil king's will and stuff are very good at standing around while people run away. And then yelling, get them! Chase them! Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it just, the it, it very much smells of, like, okay, we wanted to do a swords and sorcery action move, but, uh... We are not prepared to do fight scenes. We are not prepared to do choreography. That will not happen. Yeah, this would probably tie back to the troubled production. Yeah, I I imagine that was mostly a question of budget. It's not that they couldn't have done it, but fight scenes are expensive, especially when you can't just send them to Korea. Fight scenes also require for the animators involved in the sequence being able to coordinate complicated actions. Are you saying this might have been a factor? Yes! It might have been a factor. <laughs> Are you going to elaborate on that at this juncture? All right, look, I think I think this is the time to do this. All right. First things first, the xerography that you noticed around flu, uh, flurry. <laughs> flu de flam. He's got flam. that, his name is spelled with that Welsh double F. Oh, I know. If that I've, helps. I've, okay, yeah. I, it, it's more that I, I keep on thinking it ends with a double F and I keep on going to pronounce that vert. I'm like, no, that's not fucking right. Which right. I think is like a vert that you put a, like a hut in front of. Yeah. I think it's something like Pluda, but I'm not Welsh, and I apologize if I just did a hilariously bad job of that, but I'm doing my best. So, the Flam, you notice, is, he's, he's xerographic. He is an older relic of an older time. This is because this movie started production in 1971. Yeah, that explains a lot. Uh Uh-huh. And this movie was made by all of the cooks. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna stop here and fluff myself up a bit as I feel so such a connoisseur of animation that I can point to this one guy and go, that doesn't belong here. That <laughs> is of a higher quality than its surroundings. You're gonna hear a lot of surnames here. I'm just gonna avalanche over you here. <laughs> and later on, you're gonna pick through that and go, hang on a fucking second. <laughs> okay. Musker and Clements were originally working of it. Musker and Clements! Sorry, that's who I was trying to remember when we were talking about the dawn of the next Disney era. Mm-hmm. I apologize, go on. They were directing. Then, Stevens, Rich, and Berman, three people, were all added. Then, Stevens, who wasn't working well with the others, were shifted out for Hale. They junked Tim Burton's sketches and concept art. Yes, that Tim Burton. Yeah, Tim Burton. We could have had the Horn King illustrated by Tim Burton, huh? Uh-huh. Fascinating. And who do they think they got out to replace all of Tim Burton's concept artwork? Don Bluth. Why, guess what? He's back for another round. It's Milt Carl, who showed up, oh. delivered concept sketches, told everyone to get fucked, and walked out of the building. <laughs> oh my god. Then, this guy. You might have heard his name. Katzenberg. Oh, of course, Don Bluth wasn't on this. No. Don Bluth did another movie this year. Yeah. People may have heard of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, how could I forget that? Then you might have heard of this bloke called Katzenberg. He shows up and starts making demands and edits of the film. Now, no, he's a director or a producer? No! No? <laughs> he he's, he's part of the Disney hierarchy. He is not directly involved in this film. Oh God, he's a meddling executive. Yes. And also, Fox, hey, you're, you're an animation nerd. Yep. At this point in time, yep. if I say make edits to the film in this era of animation, what does that make you think of? How far into this are we? We are at the point where they are doing test screenings and showing children. Oh, okay. We can change, like, we can cut things. Mm. Uh, we, we we can maybe animate some minor new footage. This is the thing with these animated movies 
and the complexity of hand-drawn animation in that a lot of the time when it comes to movies that we're all used to, things that we refer to like the edit happen right at the end and sometimes frighteningly close to launch date. Uh, similar with CGI. CGI was often started at the very start of the production of the movie, <laughs> but then it has to be done off in its own silo where no one gets to touch it or change what's going oh, on. Because it's a certain amount of rendering time. Yeah, and, and changing, like, one thing, it's like turning a fucking steam train. It's the sheer quantity of energy and effort involved. It's ridiculous. At in- least with CGI, uh, the process is more efficient, so you can afford to overproduce footage a bit more than you could with hand-drawn stuff. Yeah, and then you can edit that down. But overproducing hand-drawn stuff is so expensive. The edit for hand-drawn stuff typically is done before people are drawing cells. They do it on a thing that you might have heard this word being reused these days on YouTube. It's called an animatic. It's a sequence of still ah, drawings yes. that are used as the fence post, almost like a storyboard. They, well, it usually is a storyboard put into, like, put to a timeline. Yes. And usually to the vocal track, because that's usually done way before the... Yes, exactly. Yeah. Animatics differ from storyboards in that animatics have an audio track that they play while they're <laughs> stepping through this sequence of pictures. Sometimes there's a little ticker underneath it that goes, this scene now, this scene now, this scene now, as the music is playing. Animatics are beautiful and amazing technical objects from a period of animation that we don't do much these days because... Yeah, friends, if you have Disney DVDs at home, you've probably got at least some deleted scenes that use the animatics because they never made it all the way through production. Check those out. They're amazing to see. What Katzenberg was doing was getting film... And taking it to an editor's room, like this was a live-action oh, movie. No. Cutting stuff up, rearranging them, and then handing it back to the animators and telling them oh. to patch and fix gaps. Oh. One of his edits is in this fucking movie. There is a point right at the end where the big dramatic apex of the action is happening. And you probably have heard this and it's probably sat in your brain. There's a point where the soundtrack skips. Oh, I didn't notice actually. Mm, it's it's like Dang. one one they of the just points, didn't have anything to go there. Well, it's because he cut the section out and they didn't have the audio anymore, and he did it on the fucking working copy of the mm. movie, and no one noticed it in time to catch it. I mean, that does explain a lot of really shit awkward cuts in this movie. <laughs> At which point, the CEO of Disney, a guy by the name of Michael Eisner, <laughs> a villain appears, got wind of this, turned up. And told Katzenberg to knock it the fuck off. <laughs> Who would have guessed he would be our hero for this movie and this movie alone? Well, almost. But not quite. Because <laughs> our true hero... <laughs> you fuck off doing that. I want to go now? The true hero of this whole thing are two names in the early part of this who went, There are five directors on this movie. How about we go work on this other project we've got coming up? And Musker and Clements asked to be transferred to a new project. <laughs> oh, wow. So you had this 18 talent... That then a bunch of people barnacled onto. They brought Milt Carl out of fucking retirement to do this. Everything goes wrong. And before the explosion happens, Musker and Clements are like, no, we, we, we're not involved in this. This this is not affiliated with us. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, watching it, that's the kind of environment I expect. It's not up to Disney standards. This movie is kind of disjointed and klutzily made. Even the Disney stands of this era, which have been... Pretty rough. Uh, yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, you'll never hear me say that this movie didn't deserve better. Like, 
I wanted to love this as much as I love the shit out of Sierra game. Now, you may be asking yourself, what happened to all those people? And don't worry, we'll get to that later. <laughs> I think I already know what happened to most of these people. Oh, there's some fun stuff on the horizon. All right, shall we detour through Voiceland for a bit? Real quick, I've only got two. One of which is Flam. Ah, yes, a British theatre actor. Yes, do you recognise his voice at all? I don't know. Okay. And I did check out the, the voice credits when they popped up and I didn't recognise any of those names. So. Okay, so Flam is an actor by the name of Nigel Hawthorne. Which is, uh, yes, one of the most British names you've heard today. I loved him in The Travelling Thornberries. Well, I loved him in Yes Minister. Oh my god, I do know that name. Yes, you do. Yeah. That is wow. Sir Humphrey. <laughs> That's cool. Uh-huh. And the other big British theatre name is the voice of the Horned King. Yeah, he's killing it with that voice. That is a man who has pretty much only ever done things like that with the name of Sir John Hurt. John Hurt, if I show you his Wikipedia page, it, it's one of those that, you know, like, oh, row, row after row after row. Oh, this is a summary of the main page of this guy's career. Okay, we're fine, fine, fine. <laughs> um, th he has so many roles, he didn't do a ton of animated work. So you might have heard characters who, like, Dr. Claw, for example, from Inspector Gadget, and you're like, oh, was that John Hurt? They kind of got a voice like it. No. That is not John Hurt. That is someone trying very, very hard to sound like John Hurt. John Hurt's voice was described by John Hurt himself. And that's his speaking voice. He's not putting on a thing. That's how he went about his day. Can you imagine fucking ordering milk at the store? He described it as like nicotine sieved through dirty moonlit gravel. Jesus. <laughs> he thought about that. You, you turned this over in your mind when designing a business card. John Hurt was knighted for contributions to British theatre. Ah, right. <laughs> so, uh, successful actor, you'd say. Yeah. Decent career. Yeah. <laughs> Inspired a generation of voice actors as to what terrifying sounds like. I'm sure I'd be ridiculously impressed by him if I hadn't already heard Tony Jay. <laughs> I I think that Tony Jay probably went, oh, there's use for voices like mine. I think, oddly enough, I think Tony Jay has a, a much less scary voice than him, actually, because Tony Jay has a pleasant voice to listen to, even though he can speak from the depths of hell somehow. Yeah. I mean, they kept making him God, not Satan. Yeah. I assume they kept making John Hurt Satan. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> also, he's in, if any of you are out there are fans of live action movies of sad men in suits being British at one another, he's in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It was one of his last roles. He sounds terrifying. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I'm I'm almost sad for the Horn King too. Like, the very first vision we get of him is beautifully sold. Mm. The, the way that they resist showing you his face straight away. The way that they do that slow burn lead in to reveal this guy. That's good shit. But by the time they need him to sort of just go around and interact with the other characters, he gets very dull. Yeah, it's tragic. Yeah. He doesn't, like, he's painted as being this badass sorcerer who will travel around, who could, like, teleport at several points and, like, throw fireballs and shit. And they just never have the time to show him doing it. Almost as if 12 full minutes of this movie were cut. <laughs> oh, dear. That's a lot of time. Yeah. What was the runtime on this? Did you get One hour ten. Uh, so it's not a short movie, really. No. Not for an animated movie. But in 1985, a 70-minute movie is very much cresting on the bottom end of what counts as a fucking movie. Yeah, but animation would, would stay fairly short. Like, 
I think the standard for the Renaissance is like 83 minutes or something like that. It's like mm. it's low 80s. Yeah, whereas this is low 70s. This is about 12 minutes shorter. Weird! <laughs> Weird! <laughs> what a strange coincidence of a number! <laughs> it was totally accidental. I loved it. Okay. Also, one final thing, because like visual medium, we can't possibly show you this. Uh, Ellen Wee's design as done by Tim Burton. It's exactly what you oh. would think if someone said as done by Tim Burton. All right, I'm glad we didn't get Tim Burton doing this then. Yeah, he's stuck with the scullery made thing. She's apparently a bit of a space case and she's carrying a knife. Oh, okay. So that works. <laughs> that's all book Ellen Wee. Yeah. That's that's legit. Uh, we'll talk about her when we get to the adaptation section. <laughs> I have one final thing in the making of an animation. After you then? This is the first Disney movie to be made with the new sound effects library that they finally modernized to. Every movie prior to now was using the same sound library for sound effects as they were using for Dumbo. I mean, it's fair. I've never listened to the sound effects in one of these movies and gone, well, that sounds dated. Uh Uh-huh. Well, that means that when the Glynwraiths... Uh, Gwythants. Gwythants. G-W-Y-T-H-E. A-I-N-T. Yeah, yeah. The Gwythants are circling around. They emit what I only can ever think of as... Scree? The Dragon Zord Scree. Ah! <laughs> you telling me that Power Rangers got Disney's sound library? That's a... It's, it's a common sound library. Lots of people use it. That Dragon oh. Zord sound is everywhere once you know it. When you said they modernized it, I thought you meant this was an in-house thing. No, they just like, like let's stop using our in-house set from the, fucking Dumbo. The library from which they draw their Wilhelm screams. Yeah. <laughs> and the Goofy scream. Well, isn't that a Wilhelm scream? No, different one. No. There are multiple screams. Okay. Um, I have a single voice note, uh, which is just that why is Creeper's voice so boring? Yeah. Why wasn't he entertainingly horrible to listen to? Why didn't he have some kind of personality in his voice? Yeah. He just sounded like a normal guy. And there's a bunch of people who are in there starting of their careers. You could have had this guy sound like a fish. You Like, all the Transformers voice actors are already underway. The gummy- You've got the Gummy Bears voice actors around this, at this point. Why does Gargi have such a cute voice? And mm. such an interesting critter voice? And Creeper just sounds like a British toad. Uh-huh. A British toad. I don't know what that is. Uh, but that's all I got to say about voices. The other ones are fine and serviceable. Our main characters are fairly boring, but I don't, like, they don't suck. They're not bad. They're a shitload better than previous teenage actors we've heard in Disney stuff, so go for it, kids. Oh, there's only one kid. Taron- Ellen Way's an adult? Taron was voiced by a 14-year-old. Ellen Way was voiced by a 35-year-old. <laughs> eh. oh, Voice acting's wild, man. It is, it is. So... I kind of needed to talk about all that animation stuff and the directorial fuckuppery as the stepping stone into the grand thesis of this episode. And I think that part of this is going to be admitting that for all that I've been shitting on things about this movie. I wouldn't say that. (laughs) Sorry. Do you want me to nod it? If that's your reaction to it, I'd like to say something else then. Like, if your honest reaction is, I don't think you've been shitting on it. I don't. I feel like I've been shitting on this. I don't feel like you have. I guess you could say we've been shitting on this movie. (coughs) (coughs) Sorry, I've got a snotty throat. It's okay. For all that I have been talking about this movie and the way it got made and whatnot, I haven't really disclosed an opinion of this movie. (laughs) And that is, when this movie was over, I said, this fucking owns. (laughs) 
I really enjoyed this movie. I really enjoyed the skeleton monsters and the rampaging armies. And yeah, sure, it was all badly done. But I loved what it was trying to do. And I loved just how absolutely metal album cover nonsense (laughs) some of this stuff got. I really liked that. And so when I'm looking at this, especially remembering that we're comparing it to some other movies in this same oeuvre where the protagonists are all equally dishwater bland, like the thing that stood out to me in this movie is the villain and the villain's stuff and what they do and the the visual presentation of it. And like Gurgi killing himself to save the day, even if the line of dialogue to do that is a bit shit. Mm. All of that, like bubbled away at me as I'm looking at this movie. I don't think this movie failed. I think this movie was failed. And I think that's because this movie clearly had a lot of good stuff to work with. And some of it was done well. But for the most part, a lot of people didn't know how to take what they were working on and make it happen. And my first thought about that then was, well, Snow White was a five minute bedtime story. They may take an hour. This is five books <laughs> that they've tried to make take 83 minus 12 minutes. Well, I mean, this is two books that they've tried to make take that much. Fair. Uh, like, there are five books in the series, but this movie very explicitly does not cover those. Like, Taron basically has a midlife crisis in one of these books. Mm. He, like, fucks up at the end of one of them, and the next one is him being a drifter trying to make something of his adult life and it gets complicated also does it help if i say he's our protagonist but he's not really our hero because um fucking oh god well, i can't remember his fucking name the son of math he's kind of a guy in welsh, myth- welsh mythology he comes up a bit <laughs> can't remember his fucking anyway there is a legitimate prince of welsh awesomeness in this book prince gwydion Gwydion! That's the fucking name! I, yes, kind of a big deal. I hate that I I hate that I had to double check myself on that one. Yeah, it's Prince Gwydion. It's Gwydion's tomb, right? Like, that's actually Prince Gwydion's fucking tomb. Oh, in this? No, Gwydion's alive in the books. Oh, god damn! Because, like, haunted sword! Dreadful, you know, you know uh, amazing ability to fight things. Like, oh, okay, so that's Prince Gwydion that they're referencing there, right? Gwydion, everyone? No, Prince, <laughs> Prince Gwydion is leading the war effort against Aron in these books. Uh, he is the the perfect figure who constantly eclipses Taran in his uh in his quest to be some kind of useful adult man. Uh, it's it's a good series, by the way. These are good young reader books that aren't stupid or condescending. Mm. Um, I I recommend them if you can handle some slightly rough themes that aren't that rough. Um, Fox, based on your knowing of me, are we talking? Lighter than animorphs. Oh Christ! So much lighter than animorphs. Yeah, all right, fine. In which case, go go get kids of them. I don't put out the warning signs until we get to animorphs. The morally ambiguous ending of of uh, the Chronicles of Prodane is: uh, do do you go into the West and become immortal, or or do you choose mortality and and to live life? Mm. Um, it is not war is hell and you will never escape it. Also, at least one of you is dead. Uh, it is very much lighter than animals um so i guess we're we're gonna talk full on about adaptation in here are we pretty much i mostly just wanted to forward that 
it's hard to do the kind of thing this movie wanted to do. You're really right. I mean, they've done book adaptations before, but I think they've done single book adaptations. Yeah. First in a series book adaptations. Choosing the second book was really interesting to me in this. Yeah. And Though I guess they didn't really, because they did very much merge in the first book. The other thing is, the books that they've adapted have been books that often have a very loose sense of continuity or greater point or narrative drama or arcs. Oh, in the past. In the past, yeah. 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 Peter Pan is not a book that, at least the way they interpreted it, that has a particular development in it. Uh, and that's why I, I complained at the time. They cut his best line, to die would be a great adventure. <laughs> it is... Right, and the arc they were presented with the opportunity to do for Wendy just didn't materialize. Yep. Similarly, Alice in Wonderland is almost like a collection of short stories, and the movie is also a collection of short stories. Noteworthy also, Robin Hood, collection of short stories. You can pick and choose the ones that would be interesting for an adaptation, and they didn't cover the full set of stories up until his death, because who cares about that one, you know? And I feel like, I think I, I think a big reason why this movie feels better to me than it is. Because nothing you've said is wrong. Taron is an inflated baby. Elonwi <laughs> is effectively a door jam. The the bard just... I'm so mad what they did to him. Yeah. All of that stuff is true. But there is an attempt to make a narrative that's 83 minutes long, minus 12, that has rising tension, a... a dramatic moment and then a conclusion this is before disney have necessarily started huffing the joseph campbell fumes yeah i mean it's we noted a couple of them recently for being the first times we'd had really good coherent stories running through the entire fucking movie yeah and i think that's part of why like i wrote down in my notes interestingly everything the characters are doing makes sense they're idiots they don't have creative solutions (laughs) But for the most part, everything is following along from stuff that already happened beforehand. It would have been so easy to fix the yeah. story problems with this. There is such a better movie here that just didn't get made because 15 people didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> and it's covered in the kind of dumb shit lines that normally would be nitpicking, like they would be stupid YouTube video criticism mm. things to say, but when they come up so frequently, it... it winds up creating the effect that nobody really remembers what's going on in this movie. Yeah. Like, there's a point where the, the fairy folk are like, oh, don't worry, we'll take Henwen home. The, the whole, everything up until now has been, she was supposed to be taken to a safe house because she can't be at home. Yeah. And that would be nothing on its own if that was the only occurrence, but it's just, there are a lot of times when people forget what they're doing or they're supposed to be doing or just why their new idea is a terrible goddamn idea. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, uh, one other thing that, like, normally would absolutely piss me off is the conclusion shows you Henwen looking at an oracle bowl. Like, wait, was this all your plan, Henwen? (laughs) Has this been all manipulated by the pig? (laughs) Do we suddenly have the shifty eyes of the pig as the- uh, or or, or the pig is now, like, the blue fairy? Like, honest to god, that would normally shit me up the wall, but I'm like, nah, it's a stupid baby world, but, like, you did a good job, pig. Good job controlling Hill of Space and Time. <laughs> Look, I believe, like, I mean, she is oracular, but her visions are not strictly limited to the future. Right. Because, like, we're trying to find out what the cauldron is now, if you think about it. So, okay. Like, she also just has sort of general clairvoyance. Okay. Uh, she is a magic pig, even in the books, by the way. 
Nice. But she's unrelated to the Black Cauldron. She's in the first book. Uh, in fact, I think they go and save her. Taryn has a, a father figure, who's the guy who actually owns the farm, and Darwin just kind of hangs out there. And he's like an ex-warrior, and he goes, he comes out of retirement to heroically save the magic pig. And um, I, as I recall, it doesn't go well. Taryn has a bad history with father figures outside of Gwydion, I'll say that. Completely unironically, I really do love that it's a magic pig. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. It's so fucking random, right? <laughs> when the, when they come into the hut and he's like, well, yeah, now the pig's gonna do some- The pig has seen some shit, and now the pig is gonna show us, and you're like, oh, okay, this is the kind of reality we're in. All right, All strap right. in. <laughs> Ultimately, however, I can never talk about how good an adaptation it is. I'm only ever looking in a ship-in-a-bottle kind of way at, I can see what was made- I can see the aperture through which it got made, and I can appreciate the difficulty involved. That doesn't mean that the ship is good. That just means <laughs> that I can appreciate the difficulty. Well, as we've discussed, the ship was failed more than than the ship failed. But uh, there are a few things that I think they could have not fucking changed. In, in fact, on that note, I have no idea what's in the books. <laughs> hey, Fox, um... what's different in the books? Well, we've already discussed several. Uh, the Aron and the Horn King emerged here. The first couple of books emerged here. So the goal is to steal Henwen to seek the Black Cauldron instead of these being two unrelated ideas. Uh, the Cauldron is already in the possession. Of, like, we already have Undead Soldiers wrecking shop in the books. And the goal is to stop this from happening. Um, rather than the other way around. Uh, the... The the main departure that has an impact on this story is that we're missing a very important character. Uh, who is a foil to Taran? Uh, he's basically Taran, but ruder and shittier. So Taran is a foundling, and he's insecure about not having any, like, birthright or noble title or whatever. And this kid is a noble who has lost just about everything, but is still a fucking prig about it. So he's got the desperate insecurity of, I this is the last scraps of my self-worth as a person. So the bulk of this book is actually about them having a conflict, and Ilanwe and, and Hudaflam, having been met in the previous book, are sort of more minor characters, uh, who have a much bigger part here. I don't miss our Jerkwad character, but it's significant <laughs> because in the books, our Jerkwad character is the one who sacrifices himself at the end. He actually betrays our heroes uh, to, to take the cauldron to, uh, well, for himself, I think? I can't remember exactly what his goal is, but he seizes control of it and gets it to another character who betrays the entire army, uh, and basically stabs the shit out of him. And with his dying moments, he makes the sacrifice to destroy the cauldron while the other characters just sort of desperately try and, and uh, fight this situation. Yeah. So, like, obviously that makes a really different context because Gurgi is therefore... An inconsequential character for the most part. His his function in the books is mostly that he finds weird shit. So like sometimes they'd be like, why do we have a magical horn suddenly? <laughs> like, well, I dug it out of a toilet last time we stopped for camp. Yeah. Look what I got. I'm super good, right? You love me, right? <laughs> and honestly, I do really like the comedy relief going like, no, I'm going to do the most metal thing in this whole movie <laughs> that no Disney character has done before now. I like really, it's it's very different, 
It's very different, it's I gotta say. It's very different. I don't mind this version of it, though, and I don't mind cutting out that character. I think that's probably a good change in the adaptation, because it really would have complicated things, mm-hmm. especially with Ion Lee being a more prominent character. Uh, and as I said before, I really like this Gurgi. I think they totally fucking flogged the sacrifice moment. Yes! And having it be followed by a lengthy escape sequence was a huge mistake, because, I mean, does... Does it land properly if I tell you this movie didn't even make me cry for Gurgi? Yeah. This is a character I love, and I will cry at any- I take sad scenes in movies as they are intended. If they're trying to make me cry, there's about a 96% chance I will cry. Uh, but not for this, because the timing is so bad and the presentation is so bad that you're immediately pressured to not feel sad about it, because there's still action shit going on. And you're watching- And also, I will say, as far as structure goes- the next major thing that happens is the conflict between whether the Horned King or Taran gets in the fucking cauldron next. And at that point, it's almost like revenge for Gurgi. Don't get me wrong, I think that a good bit of therapeutic violence can help everything. <laughs> but it does mean that Gurgi's suicide is kind of a whoop, and now the next thing. Yeah, it's weird. It's like it hasn't worked. It's like, the evil is all supposed to be undone, but actually it's still, like, a direct threat to our main character who still exists here. Yeah, also, not suicide. Sacrifice. Sacrifice, yeah. My bad. Fair. Different. Because, and don't get me wrong, I think part of that is the way that they phrase it. That line is terrible. Also, just, we didn't, we should have had shots, like, dwelling on this emotion between them when when Taran realizes what he's gonna do we should have some resonance here and i just feel like the arc is not completed there there are gaps in this bridge yeah and it just becomes a little too far for the the emotion to follow as it should yeah it's uh, really sad it's really sad you want to take a moment give or take 12 minutes yeah i i'd love to know what's in those 12 minutes because there's there are a lot of places where I could put in roughly 12 minutes worth of something and fix a lot of what's wrong with this. There is a storied bit of lore from people throughout the 90s when they knew that 12 minutes had been removed, where the belief was that it had just been like total metal cover, gory violence, and that was what freaked people out. But evidence (sighs) indicates that largely the worst stuff got in the movie. It's just that Katzenberg hacked around and cut out a bunch of specific moments and rearranged stuff, so that there are points where the narrative jumps around in really fucking weird mm-hmm. ways. And I would not be surprised if reaction shots of everyone being sad for Gurgi was something that got cut. I don't, like, you're, how is the sacrifice of a an adorable main character's life not the climax of that scene? Mm. If it's not, you have fucked up. And you could, And you do need to do something after that to give it breathing room for when you bring him back. The nature of the magic trick is you have to show it gone and then you have to bring it back. Yeah, like, definitely have the the collapse and the the sucking of the things back into the cauldron and, you know, have the Horn King get get sucked in there and everything. But everything our characters are doing with, like, finding a boat and getting out of there and Mm -hmm. stuff, that... In a movie that wasn't so desperately pressed for footage, I would have imagined that was stuck in later as like a, well, it's a plot hole if we don't know how they got out of the castle. We don't fucking care how they get out of the castle, alright? It doesn't matter. Yeah, by the way, the Horned King dies before Gurgi dies. That's how that structure should work. Ah, it kind of has to if you want the moment to work right. Like You kill the Horned King, you find that doesn't stop the army. Yeah, right, because they're there now. You have to depower the cauldron. It's the only choice. Yeah, you have a threat that is no longer personal, but is now existential. 
and then characters get to make choices based on, well, what would I do to save the world? As opposed to what it is, which is, is like, well, is this going to derail the Horned King's plan long enough for us to continue working on it? Anyway, that's a whole story toolbox kind of thing. Yeah, sorry, we could do a script doctor on this and it would be a hell of a thing. Uh, um, uh, uh, I am a script chirurgeron at best. I am not a qualified doctor. Right, and I am more of a script hacker. Yeah. You're a script horse doctor. With it like a hatchet, I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, okay. Uh, there's there's that. Uh, that is still mostly good adaptation. They never explain what the harp does, even though it would have been super easy. And you can kind of infer... It's obvious what the harp does. I thought they. Did, I thought that was one of the nice touches about this movie. They never bother having to explain it. What I will say is, there's no fucking reason for it to be there. What they leave out is the fact that all these three characters are brought together in this scenario. Well, in the original scenario, which is not specifically about looking for the Black Cauldron, but they all have oracular items, or at least the the bad guy believes that they do. So there's the harp of truth, there's the magic bauble, and there's the psychic pig. Mm-hmm. And this is what brings these characters together. And they don't really dwell on that as a as an idea about, like, the, these are not random characters who are found in a dungeon. They're all here for a reason. And the reason is they're cool toys. Mm-hmm. Which are also really important to the story because they get used as bargaining chips with the witches later on. Which doesn't really happen in this movie either. Kind of does. Not really. Uh, the witches are magnificently more scary in the original. They are straight. They are fey folk evil. Right. Like, they're not actually fairies, but they have that same malevolence of, like, we just don't see humans as being worth treating like humans. Or maybe we do, and that's the whole problem here. Alright. Um, so they are much more impactful. Uh, Ayalonwe is good and useful and interesting in the fucking books. Uh, did you notice that she's a witch? (laughs) Because she's a witch. She, she says she's a princess. She's a princess of a sorceress dynasty. Uh, her mom is on the out because she married a basic dude. Um, so there's this whole plot with her aunts being annoyed at her. And she gets pressured to, like, go back and continue witch training. Uh, and she doesn't really want to. She wants to do adventures because she's interesting and cool. Uh, and, like, her having magic is important and useful. But here she is useful for the, you know, 30 seconds it takes to get Taryn out of a dungeon, and then she is a a prop to whom stuff happens. It's a real fucking bummer. I did a preliminary bit of research into the comparison for Wikipedia for my thing, uh, and uh, one of the details that the Wikipedia page provides is that at no point in the book is she ever taken without being incapacitated. There are numerous points where, like, they grab... Taryn, and he's like, oh, I give up. And she's like, no, you've got to knock me out every time. <laughs> oh, she's she's really cool and resourceful and cre- Like, there's a reason she's surviving in this fucking dungeon. Because she's, like, inquisitive and and brave and clever and works shit out. I think she even, she knows where the tomb is already in the book, if I recall correctly. And it's just like, yeah, there's some old dead guy there. I can't really use any of that stuff, so I just left it. Anyway. I could I could carry on about her for a while, and I shouldn't. You're dragging me back into it, Talon. And if I don't stop bitching about Ilonwe, how will I start bitching about Rudolf Am? Here we go. Because, uh, do you know who this guy was in the original book? Did your research take you that far? I did, but I'm not going to spoil it. Go on. Right. So you know in the original book, he's the hot one. Yep. He's 
He's a sexy rogue prince who doesn't want to do boring princely stuff. So he's wandering around having adventures and trying to be a bard. And he's hot and has wild long blonde hair and is hit on by witches for extremely clear reasons. Yep. And I just, he's, he's fucking Edgar of Figaro. He's... He's the Prince Corrin. Yeah, I go. I get it. He's here for me, and they made him into a doddery old man. Yep. I'm so sad. I I do love the idea of these two teenage heroes wandering around with their pet himbo. He's he's also like he's still kind of a cowardly piece of shit. Like he's he still tries to talk his way out of trouble and buy his way out of trouble and smart his way out of trouble and if necessary seduce his way out of trouble for sure. Like. He is not a combat dude, and he knows it, and that just makes him all the more charming as as our our resident hot boy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it it kills me finding out that that's what could have been in this fucking movie. <laughs> damn it! Damn it! Damn it! All right, I'm done mourning my fucking anime pretty boy character. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> we really uncorked one on this episode, didn't we? I just really like princes who are off not being princes. That's it, like a number one Venn diagram of my favorite character in a show. Yeah. And the exiled prince is a flat circle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's about it. The The other adaptational changes are good and I respect them. Um, but those ones make me cranky. <laughs> Yeah. I I have a lot of sympathy for what this movie had to become. I again, I used it I used the phrasing already. This movie was failed. This movie was injured. There is very meaningful narrative here. There is a clear attempt to tell a kind of story Disney hasn't been telling up till now with storytelling tools they don't have. And the problem is they didn't have the understanding of what they were fucking up because they couldn't grasp what was interesting <laughs> and important about these characters. Actually, you know what? I will g- revisit the books for one very specific adaptational issue, which is the romance arc being just awful in this movie. Like, mm. it does not develop naturally. They they meet each other. They don't really like each other. They cooperate. They have a three-second fight. They make up immediately, and suddenly they're romantically interested. It's terrible. Yeah. Uh, and that's because they this romance arc is a five-book romance arc. <laughs> It it's strangled to death in in this tiny compressed version of it. And by the way, it doesn't pan out in the end either. It's like it's two kids who are like, "You're the first girl my own age I've ever met," and I'm I'm so impressed by how competent and interesting you are, and yet still so annoyed by by what a silly girl you are. And and you know, it's the kind of relationship that is stupid in the way that only uh, adolescent relationships can be. Mm. Um, and that. Did not translate acceptably in this movie. That's that's the one biggest failing of the adaptation. I just yeah. nah. They would have been better off not trying to force them to be love interests. They wouldn't have lost much either. To whatever land. Yeah. Let's let's wrap this one up. Everybody should have Welsh accents, you fucking cowards. <laughs> I am a huge mark for the term horned king. I wonder if this <laughs> makes me technically a pagan. <laughs> Uh, the cat's name is Cat. The cleanliness of this pig and the pickiness of it with its food is completely at odds with everything I'm ever used to seeing about <laughs> pigs in cartoons, and it was really interesting. Of course, because Henwen is also a dog. Yeah, Henwen's a fucking She's dog. A fucking dog. Okay, yeah, <laughs> this comes up every time. Um, as annoying as Taran is doing his little boy daydreams of being a warrior, 
I think it's really cute that when the goat owns him, he plays along with it and works yeah. it into the story. That's way cute. In a lesser story, we would have had, eh, I'm going to sulk now. You've all made me feel humiliated, stupid farm animals. So points to the kid for that. This movie has the phrase, this oracular pig. Oh, I have that note too. <laughs> it's so good. So wonderful that you should be able to say that in a movie. Um, do you think the stream that Taran looked in when he loses Henwen was like magic fairy stream that was showing him a vision. I really like to think it was, because otherwise he's just a dipshit of the highest order. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have this one very important mission. Let me ignore that for long enough to completely lose the thing I have tied to a rope in my hand. <laughs> it's like, I, I need that to be fairy water, because otherwise our boy is too dumb to live. Through the arc of the Disney animated cannibal, we've moved from fuck you skeleton to... We are the fuck you skeletons. <laughs> nice. We've completed a circle. Uh, when they bring out Henwen when she's a prisoner, they have her in leg iron. So <laughs> 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 over the top. It's hilarious to me. The death of the Horned King is officially sick. Sick as hell. <laughs> Fucking awesome animation. You see his skin peel off. Holy shit balls! I'm so glad I didn't see this when I was a kid. I would have hated animation forever. I'd be like, <laughs> no, I don't want to watch any more cartoons. Muppets only. <laughs> uh, did you notice the blood? Yes. Taron bled from the mouth, right? Yeah. When he gets smashed face yeah. down. That, by the way, that'll happen. <laughs> yeah, it, I appreciate it, because they didn't really sell the impact of that too much, but when he looks up and he's clearly like, like uh, something has ruptured, even if it's only a lip. And uh, I do believe this is the first time we've seen Disney blood and the last time we will see Disney blood for a long fucking time. Yeah. Um, I appreciate Taron's utilitarian approach to the Dead King's sword. Yep. You're not using that. How about we don't die? <laughs> My sword now. Good job. Uh, Gogi says he's found the pig's tracks and the other characters doubt him. He is standing on the tracks at the time. They are literally right there. It's <laughs> just one of those things that makes me cranky that would be a useless nitpick in a film that wasn't full of things like that. Yeah. That's a mistake that would normally get caught Yeah, by a director. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I hate these fairies. I'm really mad at what they did with the fairies. These did are shit-ass little pixies in onesies, little dumb baby fairies. These are not Welsh fair folk. I reject them. Did you spot Tinkerbell? I spotted Peter Pan. Yeah, Tinkerbell is one of the fairies. Yeah. And yeah, no, they, they couldn't use the actual Welsh fair folk because do you know how many of those stories are about this fair folk was so hot <laughs> and we boned? <laughs> okay, they don't have to be hot or horrifying, but they could at least be sort of otherworldly. But they are little pixie babies in cages. Oh, yeah, no, it's, these, it's these are American greeting card fairies. These are not the fair folk. Dolly, by the way, is supposed to be a dwarf, mm. uh, but like a fair folk dwarf, not a not a gimli. Yeah. Well, well, in Welsh myth, the ideas of a lot of things we consider to be separate are all the same. Yeah, goblin, sprite, spirit, pixie, got dwarf, and elf are all used reasonably interchangeably. It's not until Dungeons and Dragons kind of calcified in a lot of people's minds that oh no, these are all separate tracks. They're definitely not supposed to look like this, though. No! <laughs> Whatever they are, it ain't this. I think in the the books they're described as being like a pile of twigs with a spiderweb floating on top or something. They're really fucking weird. That's the shit. Yeah. They're they're real strange. Um, I, uh, uh, I only tries to convince Tara not to give up the sword to get the cauldron. And that's stupid and awful. Yeah. Like, she should have been the one going, no, nah, you gotta do it, man. Yeah. <laughs> 
He's attached to it. She's not. She uh, she just suddenly turns into a character going, no, don't sacrifice of yourself and do the noble thing every time he tries to do an action. If we Sucks. had more time, because this is already a beast, we could do a really interesting point about how Ellen Wee exists to facilitate the action that Taran is about to take through resistance. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great summary. Uh, I don't think our listeners need us to unpack that for them. I think they've seen that kind of thing before. Well, our listeners are all extremely cool. And smart. And uh, well-versed in media study. No, wait, that's you. Uh, what, I think a robber? Good thing the witches explained the trick they were going to do with the bargain before doing it. We definitely needed to have that laid out for us and then enacted. Well, yeah, but also I appreciate, again, because it's a world of idiots, right? That's beyond, like, like you said, they trusted us to know what the harp did yeah. in context. I think we could have worked out what the witches... Trixie bargains are not a new concept by 1985. We, no. We get it. And also it just ruins the, the moment of impact when it's like, ah, oh, we finally succeeded in our goal. Bam! Ha ha! You eat shit, hero! <laughs> like, you take that away if you go, well, okay, listen to me carefully. What we're gonna do, see, is make him think he's got what he wants and then tell him to eat shit. Okay? Ready? Go! That is, once again, Panto. Mm, really frustrating. Uh, I love that when the cauldron finally got to reanimate some dead guys, it's like talons came to life. Mm. That was rad. And more, apparently, blood, though it wasn't really coming out of a person this time, so I guess it's not scary anymore. But, like, it was just cool that it was, like, suddenly a, a living thing that was, like, clawing at its environment with the effort of what it was doing. That was a nice... I also find it entertaining that they, they had all the skeletons animate from dipping one in the cauldron, because, I mean, it would have been tedious as hell to have to dip them all one by <laughs> one, which is how it's meant to work, by the way. Just get an assembly line of dunking dead guys into this thing. But uh, I understand our time constraints and, and the need for this scene to you know, proceed rather than just suddenly take on the characteristic of an office. Uh, Hudaflam, you were a frog, not a toad. You should know it. No, my. Uh, this, this is an annoying nitpick and it happens in every Disney movie that has flying monsters. But why do flying monsters always forget they can fly when something collapses around them? Like, we saw multiple Gwythans going down with this castle. Just, you know, kind of holding their wings out uselessly rather than yep. flying away. And like, just fucking just don't have wing things. Or have something fall on them. That's not hard. I feel like Sleeping Beauty had things fall on the flying monsters. Anyway, uh, and my last little annoyance is just that Island We calls Gurgi clever at the end. After sacrificing himself and being resurrected, she's like, oh, you clever little thing. What? No. Yeah, that's no. Not, that's not the actual moral imposition there. <laughs> that's not what happened here. He did not survive by cunning. He he unsurvived and was brought back by his friend's equal and opposite nobility or something. And again, lots of resistance to what actually happened. Yeah. I assume you also got my note when he was rematerialized as part of another Trixie Witch bargain where I just said, little Spanish flea. Yep. <laughs> Possibly the most mean-spirited little Spanish flea we've had in one of these films, but, you know. There's an alternate timeline where they're like, well, we brought him back. You didn't say he had to be alive. Ah, eat shit, hero! <laughs> I'm not saying it would have been a better ending. Or even a good ending. Or even not a stupid, terrible ending. But it's funny to imagine. Uh, and that's all I got for Whatever Land.
bad. That brings us to the end of this film, which uh, deserved better than it got. But it's not through with getting kicked yet, because now we have to talk capitalism. Hey, Fox. Uh? What do you think the budget for this movie was like, and what do you think the return was? <sighs> How badly do I think the budget ballooned since our last movie? Because we saw a big jump in Fox in the House. Yeah. We broke double-digit millions for the first time. Yep. And these budgets escalate very quickly Ooh, going yeah. into the Disney Renaissance. Like, I know by the end of Disney Renaissance, we spent $100 million on one of these films. Yeah. Um, and the time frame is much shorter than this movie. Because you got to remember, this movie started in 71! <laughs> yes, yes. But I also know that Beauty and the Beast is astonishingly cheap. Uh, yeah. Compared to uh, the rest of the Renaissance. And I'm just wondering, was it in fact less expensive than the tail end of, of what led up to it? And I think that answer might be yes. Um, I think they spent way too much money on this. And that's part of why it was such a fucking disaster for them. I think we may have jumped from 12 million to like 20 million. Tell me if I'm close. You're off by half. <gasps> they spent $40 million on this? This movie cost $44 million to make. This cost four times what the last movie they made did, which cost almost twice as much as its predecessor. Yeah. That has ballooned so quickly. I thought I was being generous. Wow. This okay. season has seen us go from the budgets of Robin Hood. So I would like to suggest to you that this movie was eight and a half Robin Hoods. <gasps> right, because we were dealing with like anything between three and eight. Yeah. Before we hit Fox and the Hound, was that? Yeah. yeah. And that's just, oh, that's venturing into a different scale entirely. Um, did it, it, did it even fail to make back its budget? Is this why it's the colossal failure of the Disney studio? Did it only bring in like half? It brought in 23 million. So I'm going to give that Fair, to you. Like half. Yeah. All yep. right. One out of two ain't bad. This movie was beaten at the box office by the Care Bears movie, which screened for three months fewer. <laughs> this movie was such a failure that it did not get a home theater release until 1998, 13 oh, years later. Jeez. And that was part of a box set from the Disney vault. Box set? Yeah. Not that very often. It was a standard, like, it was a standard covered movie, but you couldn't buy The Black Cauldron on its own. You had to buy it bundled <laughs> with other movies in 1998. That's fucking rough. Hey, uh, Fox, how do you think the DVD sales went for this movie? <laughs> That's a trick question, because I peeked behind this curtain earlier when I commented on it being widescreen on Disney Plus, and you were like, oh, it's never been widescreen before. <laughs> yeah, this movie never came out on DVD. The entire DVD era, which don't get me wrong, it's kind of wild to say, oh yeah, DVDs are a past technology thing. You know, rise and fall of a Roman Empire shit. But yeah, this movie got a Blu-ray release four months ago. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it does kind of make sense the DVD is over now because now it's like streaming for everyone and Blu-ray for people who still care about having a physical copy of a movie because that's... That's becoming just a serious collector thing now, rather than an everyday person thing. And if my sources are to be believed, and it's a fandom wiki, so, you know, eh, great assault. <laughs> uh, but that 4K release on Blu-ray was what led to the Disney Plus version getting upgraded to 4K. They had to finally oh. make it a 4K version this year. Oh, fascinating. Uh-huh. So it wasn't... I thought you were saying they put out a, a Blu-ray because they already had the, the Disney Plus version and they might no. as well. No. Huh, so there have been two commercial releases of this movie for home video. 
one in 1998 and one in 2021. <laughs> so I guess it kind of redeemed itself on the 2021, or at least to the point where they bothered to to update the version that was on Plus. Oh, we're going to get to that. Oh. But, but the other thing is, I watched the credits, and I watched the credits with this kind of sad eye because I had looked up things ahead of time and seen just a list of fucking gunshots. Hey. Eh? So, the failure to get this film out in a reasonable amount of time meant that Ron Miller, the guy in charge of coordinating these movies, he is out. He is gone. Oh, gunshots like people who got fired. Uh-huh. He Shit. got bounced from Disney so hard, he didn't go to any other animation studio, any other production studio, any other general movie stuff. He went, he founded a winery. That's what he's been doing since. <laughs> wow. If you've ever heard of Silverado, that's Ron Miller. I haven't, but the I'm not a big wine guy. The many directors included Ted Berman, Richard Rich, and Joe Hale. They were all fired on the same day. I mean, probably fair. Berman and Hale have never worked in animation since. <laughs> because it turns out that if you piss off Disney in the in the early 80s, they make sure everyone knows it. That might kind of be a mutual thing, though. Because it could also be like, man, if this was your big experience with animation, you might just be like, fuck doing animated films. They are so much more trouble than they're worth. Richard Rich, when he got bounced for this, went back home to Utah, where he started doing work on biblical and American history animations. Ugh. Which he is still working on. It's gonna be some homeschooling shit, or- wait, Utah. It's gonna be some Mormon shit. It's general Christian shit. Ugh. Don't be wrong, he's probably a Mormon, but oh, he's making a... stuff to sell. To the American Christian audience. Is there plausible deniability overlap between those two, is there? He's responsible for a franchise built on the Swan Princess, which you might recognize as being Don Bluthy, but not very Don Bluthy. And that's in part because they were inspired by Don Bluth. Don Bluth getting out there and taking on Disney in his own game. And also a series of movies known as the Alpha and Omega series. Yeah, that means that during the 90s he was producing media that was showing up in MySpace. He was showing up in the cult. Hmm, cool. Yeah. Any any particularly horrifying examples that I might know of? Like, does it turn out this guy is behind McGee and me or something? No, that was Focus on the Family, which I'm pretty sure he Ugh. didn't directly have any involvement in. But maybe, who knows, I don't care enough to do that research. It's a fairly incestuous well at last check. Yeah. It was also very nearly the death of Disney itself. Legendarily, like, everybody knows that it, it was a huge fucking flop that nearly killed the studio. I thought for many years it had opened across from Land Before Time, too. Like, that's what I'd always heard. But mm. uh, upon double-checking, Land Before Time was a few years later, so... Uh, incidentally, when I said Musker and Clements went on to another project, it was not The Little Mermaid. No, they uh, they wouldn't have gone straight to their, their 1989 movie, I assume. No. Uh, they, they, um, they worked on the next movie, which Hooray. honestly sounds like it's going to be a pretty good deal. I, I very much enjoy our next coming up, but that's a spoiler, I guess. Here's the other thing. This movie worked in Jeffrey Katzenberger's favour inside Disney, because he basically stomped around going, this thing's going to suck and fail, and it's going to be shit, and that made him look like a fucking oracle when it did, ignoring that he may have had a moment or two, give or take 12 minutes, before that point to make some changes. <laughs> Made him look fucking oracular, like he could see into the future, by about 12 minutes or so. And finally, the final thing I have in the capitalism fanfare. Disney have reacquired the rights to these books. 
No, no live action Black Cauldron. No, no. And they are no. planning. Bad Disney, no. As of 2016, to remake the book series as a live action TV show. Mm-hmm. All right. I don't know how to feel about that. Me neither. Look, I, I, I'm not saying it has to be bad. I'm not saying I want it to be bad. I'd love it to be good. It's just that the stuff I have watched Disney Disney, not, you know, Star Wars or Marvel Disney, do for live action TV is, you know, a a slice of life or magical reality sitcom stuff for high school. And like, it's just that if you told me they were the people who'd be doing a series like that, I'd be like, really? But, you know, maybe it'll be great. I would love for there to be a new trend of, of like Disney's live action TV being as cool as Disney's animated TV shows are at the like. I'll house that shit up. <laughs> anyway, what's next, Fox? You know what? Let's do this a little differently. Because for once, I know you know what's next. What's next, Talon? Why? Why would I? Why would I necessarily know what's next? <laughs> uh, my explanation is two words, and they are Vincent and Price. Yeah, it's 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 the great mouse detective. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go find out why Fox thought Sherlock Holmes was the shit when she was a kid. <laughs> But not that boring human one. Well, after I've done the edit for this one. Uh-huh. Fuck. Oh, so what you're saying is that this project sort of ran outside of its own scope and now we need to make some very demanding edits that uh, won't really suit things and will create a number of awkward cuts and unreasonable tension in a story that was already struggling to shrink itself into the available space. I'm going to be dropping at least 12 minutes. <laughs> This is my sound effect library. You can you can use that one for free if you want it. I'm gonna cut Enjoy. that. Enjoy. <laughs> oh! Alright, well, put it up as a stinger or something. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs>